personal prophetic words. All right. If you have a Bible with you, please open up to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. So a few weeks ago, I began a new series of messages on our ethos and values, the Charlottetown Vineyards ethos and values. And I've, de- I've defined my understanding of what an ethos is. This is from uh, Cambridge Bible? Is that what it says up there? Collins Bible. Uh, they define ethos as this, the distinctive character, spirit, and attitudes of a people, a culture, or an era. And I told you that there were four distinctives to the Charlottetown Vineyard's ethos. The first is passion. We are a passionate people. We love God, people, and life passionately. The second is freedom. That it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that we're exploring the fullness of that freedom and living it out as best we can. The third is spirit. As a people, we're not content to live an intellectual and academic faith only that we want to live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to know God personally, intimately, and experientially. And the fourth distinctive to our ethos is destiny. We want to fulfill our God-given destiny and help others do the same. And then I identify four values, and they are this, worship. Worship that touches the heart of God and inspires His people. That's my highest personal value. The second is the word. It's our standard. It's inerrant. It's divinely inspired. The third value is relationships. Friendships that are authentic, gracious, loving, and trustworthy. And the fourth is reaching out, giving what we got to who we can. No strings attached. And so I've been speaking on each of these. Last week I covered the first of our four values, worship. And basically I told you this, just in a nutshell. I defined worship for you from both Greek and Hebrew. And uh, I told you that the imagery suggests taking a knee and kissing someone's hand or bowing down on your face in reverent awe. I offered reasons why we worship. We worship first and foremost because he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy to be worshipped and adored. Secondly is because it's the activity of heaven. And I gave you scripture that talked about, that described the worship that happens even now around the throne. I told you that another reason why we worship is that it's one of the primary ways that we get to experience the manifest presence of God. Didn't didn't that happen for some of us this morning? As Angie and Colin led us in worship, some of those songs resonated in our hearts. That new song, uh, the Lazarus song, uh, He Came, You Came, right? Could you feel something touching a deep place in your heart as we did that song? I know I did. Worship has the power to do that. That was my last definition, uh, purpose for why, for why we worship, is that it has the power to wiggle past all of our defenses and touch the deepest parts uh, in our own heart, those places of pain, those deep places. And I talked a bit about how we worship, what we do here on a Sunday morning in the singing portion of our Sunday service. And I told you that the goal of worship is this, is that it's intimacy with God. As we worship Him, as our worship leaders put together their sets, their song list for a Sunday morning, the goal is to help us enter His courts with thanksgiving, His gates with praise. 
until it leads us to a place of intimacy with him. We really do want to be a people who worship God in a way that touches his heart and inspires his people. Today I'm going to take a look at our second value, which is the word. <coughs> by that I mean scripture, the Bible. So why don't we begin by looking at the word. As I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 for you. This is uh, Paul writing to Timothy. It's his final charge to Timothy. And Paul writes this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is inspired. It is God-breathed. Lord, I pray that you use me this morning to communicate the significance, the importance, the value of your word to your people. Amen? Amen. So let's begin with some facts about the Bible. I found most of these on a website called biblesources.org. You can check it out if you like. Um, there are 66 books in the Bible, and they're divided, as most of you probably know, between the Old and the New Testament. There are 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. The word testament here meaning covenant. It's the written covenant between God and his people. The scripture was written by the Holy Spirit, thus the inspired part. He inspired 40 different authors from all walks of life. We have books and chapters in scripture that were written by shepherds, by farmers, by tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and kings. And despite the different backgrounds and the span of many years, the Bible is an extremely cohesive and unified book. I think it's one of the evidences of the fact that this isn't just like any other book. It truly is divinely inspired. Let's see. Authors who contributed the most uh, to the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, it's Moses. He wrote the first five books, also known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the New Testament, the most prolific writer was the Apostle Paul. He wrote 14 books in the New Testament, over half, uh, over half the New Testament. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, beginning approximately from 1450 B.C. in the time of Moses to about 100 A.D. when the book of Revelation was penned. The oldest book in the Old Testament, many scholars agree, is, is the book of Job, written by an unknown Israelite in 1500 B.C. Some might argue that the Pentateuch is older. I don't know, my own research says it's probably Job. The youngest book of the Old Testament would be the book of Malachi, written about 400 years before Christ. The oldest book of the New Testament is James, 
written about 45 years after the birth of Christ. And Revelation is the youngest book written about 95 AD. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And we've had what we know as the Bible, if anybody still carries a non-electronic one with them. We have this book of the Bible. There we go, Mike's got one. Um, We've had this same basic version of Scripture since about 375 A.D., that's when the scripture was, was what is called canonized. Church uh, fathers, uh, authorities of the day and the time, New King James, New King James over there, um, came and agreed upon which letters, which of the writings would be included in what we know as the Bible. The Bible was first translated into English in 382 uh, A.D. by John uh, Wycliffe. It was first printed in 1454 by Jonas Gutenberg. He has he was the one uh, who's known as uh, inventing uh, the printing press or type mold. And uh, yes. the Bible was the very first book ever printed. The oldest complete manuscript of the Bible uh, no, now in existence is known as the Codex. The Codex. The, uh, the Codex Vaticanus, which dates from the first half of the 4th century. And it's located, not surprisingly, in the Vatican Library. There are older fragments of the Bible, uh, but the, the, the oldest full complete is in the Vatican. The longest book of the Bible is the book of Psalms, the shortest is 2 John. The longest chapter is Psalm 119. And the shortest chapter is Psalm 117. Longest verse, Esther 8, verse 9. The shortest verse, John 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Uh, the Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages. 2,018 languages I was able to find. With countless more partial translations and audio translations of unwritten languages. That's an enormous amount of translations. Just to give you an example for comparison, Shakespeare, considered to be one of the masters of the English language, his works have only been translated into 50 languages. Right? So we've got Shakespeare in 50 languages, the Bible in over 2,000 languages. It is the best-selling book of all time. The, Guinness, the website for Guinness World Records says that... Uh, a survey from the Bible Society concluded that 2.5 billion copies were printed between 1815 and 1975. And more recent estimates put that printing number at closer to 5 billion copies. There are 7 billion people in the world, and there are 5 billion copies of Scripture. I've probably got 25 copies on my own bookshelves. <laughs> So in our value, I say that the, when we look at the word, that the Bible is our standard, it's inerrant, and it's divinely inspired. Let, let me speak to each of those briefly. It's our standard. What do I mean by that? Well, it's our measuring stick. It's our boundary marker. It's the place that we turn to when we need to figure out which way to go. 
or when we need to understand which way not to go. It's our roadmap on our spiritual journey. But it's even more than that. It's a love letter from the bridegroom to the bride. It's an intimate communication from God. Matter of fact, every Bible is documented evidence that we have a speaking God. That our God has determined to communicate with his creation. He did not create the earth, give it a spin, and walked away to go do something else somewhere else in the universe. The scriptures are evidence that we have a God who not only speaks, but who initiates communication again and again and again. Either God would show up or an angel would show up, and they'd say, be not afraid, <laughs> right? Why were they afraid? Because the, our holy God was communicating with us as people. That's a pretty amazing thing. Now, I know some of you have seen angels. An angel shows up, guess what? It's kind of frightening, yeah. It's unbelievable. Pretty amazing. The almighty God of the universe enjoys speaking with us. We are the object of his divine affection. Now listen, his word never changes. God never changes. But we do, gladly we do. I'm glad at almost 57, I'm not the same guy I was at 17 or 27. This is a good thing, right? Most of us look at that and we, you know, we see those changes as maturity, as growth, right? We've put away childish things. We've become adults. And, and that's a good thing. Though the word never changes and God never changes, I can give you testimony to the fact that our understanding of God of his ways and his word, that really does change. I see the scriptures differently today than I did 40 years ago when I gave my life to Christ. And don't we hope that that's the case? So, for wherever you are right now, my encouragement to you, do yourself a huge, huge favor when it comes to the word of God. Stay teachable, stay teachable, and be humble. God, in his infinite wisdom, has moved Nadine and I around a few times. So we've, we've gone through the experience of, of going into a new church that's already well established. And, and usually when God sends me someplace, it's not because he wants me to just continue doing what that church has always done. I'm a change agent. Well, like it or not, it's, it's the truth, right? If you, if you look up the history of the name Zawacki, one of the meanings of my, of my name is troublemaker. And, and, and though it's never quite my intention to create trouble, I don't know, just seems to happen. And usually this is the issue. That on my journey, God's revealed himself to me and given me insight and understanding to his word. And I come to a new place and I share that with them. And not surprisingly, it differs from what they've already learned on their journey. And don't you know that Christians can get very upset oh, yeah. when you start to barbecue their sacred cows, right? <laughs> and I'm running around church saying, it's hamburger time. You know? I like Give me a big old Big Mac, you know? <laughs> what happened? Is my understanding of the word clashed with their understanding of the word? He got one, yay! <laughs> I told a joke and people actually laughed. That's, you know... <laughs> 
but my kids say, oh, dad, that's a dad joke, you know. Uh, my dad jokes and my pastor jokes are usually about the same. Anyway. And so as we go forward in our journey, don't we want to be teachable? Don't we want to learn new things? Right? I mean, when I consider the enormity of God, even what I've learned in a lifetime of study, I've only scratched the surface barely of who he is. There's so much more. He's infinite. And as I've discovered on the way, that there are scripture verses that I've read my whole life, and then one day, God shines light on it, and I see things in that word I've never seen before. I, I've lost count, honestly, how many times I've read through the scripture. I've, I've done it every way you can imagine. Any kind of reading plan there is, at some point on my journey, I did it. And so I love the word of God. I've, I've been in it every week from, for decades now. And every once in a while, I read a verse, and I'm thinking, how did I not see this before? How is that possible? But it helps me to stay humble and stay teachable. I keep learning new things. What we don't want is we don't want to be like the Pharisees. They knew the word, but they didn't know the heart. They knew the words of God, but they didn't know the heart of God. And this is what Jesus had to say about them in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spice, mill, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out gnats, and swallow camels. Amen? Hey, there, are, there have been seasons in my life I could be put into that category. I can remember as a young Christian, I had taken this, this discipleship class, right? Anybody remember Navigators? I haven't heard that about that. The Navigators 2-7 series. I, I, was, I don't know, I think we took it twice and taught it a couple of times. I went through this class a whole bunch of times. But in the beginning, they make you memorize scripture verses. We had to memorize 65 scripture verses. And so I became one of those annoying people that whatever conversation you were in, boom, a scripture verse would just pop out of my mouth. Right? I mean, pop, I'd have a scripture verse for everything. I was so annoying. Oh, my God. And one of my best friends, they say the wounds of a friend, right? My friend Jim looked at me and said, Hey, Tom, I remember a time when you knew a whole lot less scripture, but you were a lot more loving. What happened? Ooh. And he was right. I was a jerk. I was just a stupid jerk who, who had a pocket full of Bible verses. I don't want to be a Matthew 23 Pharisee. And how do I avoid that? I stay humble. I stay teachable. Let's memorize scriptures. Let's just not be a jerk. <laughs> right? So it's our standard. The scriptures are our standard. They are inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Boy, that's a challenging statement nowadays. Let me say it this way. As communicated by God, the scriptures are absolutely without error. Absolutely. Now, as interpreted and as applied by man, there can be error. We see Jesus said that to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. There was nothing word with, wrong with the words that they had. But how they interpret them, how they apply them to their lives, there was a lot of things uh, out of order. So just uh, bear that in mind. Being inerrant, we can trust the word of God. But we may want to hold suspect or at least open to interpretation, our understanding of the word. 
And it's divinely inspired. What does that mean? It means, just as we read in 2 Timothy, that the words of Scripture are God-breathed. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. The King James Version uses the word inspired. And the Greek word used here is uh, diaphanustos, meaning inspired by God. Theos, meaning God, and nuo, meaning to breathe. Or as the New International Version gets it correctly, the scriptures, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning that it came from the very mouth of God. That's where the breath would come from. And from a spiritual understanding, even more than just from the mouth of God, they come from the heart of God, or from the spirit of God. This is wonderful good news. Now, let me take a moment here and state as clearly as possible. One of my, along being pastoral, my giftings are prophetic. Even this morning, right, at the end of worship, a lot, a lot of personal prophetic words uh, were shared today. I, I love that that gift's available to us today. And I tell you what, um, it's fun. <laughs> I, I enjoy it very much. But let me state as clearly as possible that current, modern-day, prophetic revelation is not equal to Scripture. It's absolutely not equal to the weight of Scripture. Current revelation must never contradict Scripture. Right? Now, sometimes God will give me images or pictures, and I can't find those images or pictures in Scripture. That's not my standard, that anything I would... Uh, prophetic uh, that I would utter prophetically. Any, it doesn't that exact verbiage or imagery doesn't have to be found in Scripture. Otherwise, I'd never be allowed to use modern day imagery in a word I share, like a train or a bicycle or you know a table like we have here. None of that would be found in Scripture. But here is the standard that whatever I share, it must never violate Scripture. And I would say to you, if anyone gives you a prophetic word and it violates scripture, be it from me or anyone else, throw it away. Just get rid of it. Ignore it. Right? Well, go and, if it's me, certainly come to me and say, hey, what's going on here? This isn't making sense to me. Right? So there, there's a, the canon of scripture is a higher standard of the word of God than any prophetic words that are given today. That's clear, right? Amen. Okay, good. So current revelation must never contradict Scripture. And though I love revelation, and I wish that all of you would operate in the gift, but do it with the comfort and the knowledge that the Scriptures are your safety net. Okay. So what does the Word have to say about the Word? I thought I'd take a few minutes on this. There are portions of Scripture that speak about the significance of Scripture. Psalm 119, 105 tells us that the word of God will light our way. His word, your word, is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. Is the path you're on dark? Can you not see the road ahead of you? The word of God will show you the way to go. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, speaks about us being firmly established, well-nourished and fruitful. In the word of God, blessed is the one who does not walk 
in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Meditate on the word of God. Read the word. If a verse or even a word captures your heart, use it for meditation. Use it for prayer, for intercession. Let it, let it rest in your heart, and you will be like a tree planted firm by streams of living water. The word of God is, is like a weapon in our hands, not to cut up our brothers and sisters. Anybody else ever experienced that? <laughs> but to contend with the attacks of the enemy. Ephesians 6, 17 and 18. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can quench the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. It has, the Word has the power to get right to the heart of the matter. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Allow it to be a mirror for you. Let it be a reflection. Let it reveal to you what's really going on inside your heart, inside your mind. And let the word carry the weight, carry the standard. Be, be your boundaries. And along with Christ Jesus, the Word of God, Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, the Word of God is our solid foundation in the storms of life. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and blew and beat against that house and it fell with a crash. We all need a solid foundation. We need a solid foundation on which to stand. The word of God is that solid foundation. Now let me give you some personal tips for studying the scripture, and I hope that you all would. Know this, that if we're going to have a true understanding of the word of God, that it's at, the Holy Spirit is absolutely required. It's essential that we have the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God. St. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. 
The person without the Spirit cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Guys, we need, we need the Holy Spirit. We, can't, we simply cannot do this Christian life without the Holy Spirit. When God's whole design, His eternal purpose from the very beginning was that we would have the Holy Spirit living, active, resonant within us. I read something recently by C. Baxter Kruger, theologian. And he was talking about the incarnation. He says, you have to understand, I'm paraphrasing now, that Jesus wasn't plan B. That God wasn't surprised by the fall. And Jesus didn't have to come to clean up the mess. That from the beginning, God knew what was going to happen. That Jesus was, was part of the original design for the purpose of us having intimate relationship with God. And equally so, so was the coming of the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, God's design was that he wanted to be so close with his people that he would actually live inside of us. And, and that's what he does. So we cannot understand the things of God without the Spirit of God. It's, it's absolutely required. So why is it nowadays that you can go to ten different churches and hear ten messages on the same text and they all say different things? Well, because people are listening to different voices. The Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. <laughs> He's not. Jesus said it this way in John 4, 20, John 14, 26. He says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Advocate. Now, when studying Scripture, and I hope that you do, please keep this in mind. As you read it, what was the author's intent? It's critically important. I think where most misinterpretation of Scripture comes is that verses are cherry-picked out of context. And honestly, I try really hard not to do that. I'm sure I've done it sometimes, but it's very important to me, an issue of integrity of character for me as I teach you the word of God I want to understand what the writer was saying when he said it if you want to have a rich full understanding do that and when when you read scripture try to read it within context don't, don't just read verses you know three and four but what does one and two have to say and five and six also read it within uh, the context read the whole chapter maybe read the chapter before and the chapter after but get a sense of what's, what's going on in, in the story being recorded. What did the author mean when he wrote it? What did it mean to the people he wrote it to and in the culture of that day? Because as time goes on, the meanings of words change. There are some words from my childhood that mean different things today. There are some things that, words that were commonly used in my childhood that are just not appropriate anymore. They're offensive. Culturally, Our culture has shifted in just a few decades. Imagine if we're going back a couple of centuries. So when you read scripture, read it from the, from, from the culture and to the culture of that day. And please, again, the whole be humble and teachable thing. Be open to a clearer understanding. 
Make sure that your personal spiritual lenses uh, aren't smudged. I was sitting at the next to Nadine at the table there earlier, and she reached over, pulled off my glasses, and cleaned the smudge off my lens. She says, "Can't you see this?" <laughs> and the sad answer is, "Nope, I didn't see it at all." Right? It's it's important if our lenses are clear. Hopefully, I see things more clearly today than I did 30 years ago. I'll give you a, a perfect example of this. One of my favorite books, and I've recommended it to, to many people, we've done it as a book club here, is a book titled He Loves Me by Wayne Jacobson. Wayne was here a little over a year ago. Love that book. And i got to tell you, the first time I read it, maybe five or six years ago, I read through that book, and this is what astonished me. He uses very familiar biblical uh, text uh, throughout the book, and yet has such a unique understanding of Scripture, I sat there dumbfounded thinking, how could I have been studying this book, teaching this book, reading this Bible all of these years, and not seeing what was so clearly obvious in the way that Wayne Jacobson taught it? I needed to be humble. <laughs> I needed to be teachable. And it just opened up my heart and my mind to understanding the love of the Father in ways that I honestly never took hold of before. It was transformative for me. But for me to get there, I needed to be willing to say, hey, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> At least in part. I remember hearing a, a preacher talk once about his old tapes. The sermons used to come on cassette tapes. He says, oh, I listened to some of his old tapes. He says, I was anointed. Man, I was anointed. I was preaching that tape. That, that sermon. He said, I was wrong. <laughs> he said, man, I was anointed. <laughs> I feel that way too. I think if I pulled out some of my old sermons, I would just cringe. Again, let's hope it's maturity. So simple Bible study for yourself. Even if you don't have a library at your disposal like I do, I encourage you to do this. If, God, if you're reading through Scripture and a, and a verse highlights to you, Read that same verse in a, a variety of translations. Right? Most of the time I use the New International Version. But if something really speaks to me, I'm going to go to a New American Standard, see how they, how they wrote it. I'm probably going to go to the Message and see how they wrote it. I like looking at the Amplified Bible and see how they wrote it. There's a new translation out that I really like called the Passion Translation. It's excellent. They don't have the whole book of the Bible, the, all the books of the Bible done yet, but it's excellent. You know, scholarly study. And so sometimes, or if I read a verse, I'm thinking, you know what, that sounds awkward to me. It doesn't make sense to me. If I read it in other translations, um, I, I gain new insight. I get a clearer understanding. I get to see the bigger picture. So read it in various translations. And as something speaks to you, look into deeper words. Look deeper into keywords. Take notes. Take your own notes. I think it's great to read other commentaries, but I would challenge you to do this. Write your own commentary. Why can't you? Even some of the great masters, commentary, I got commentaries on my bookshelf, 500 years old. What did they do? They read the Bible and they wrote their thoughts on it. Guess what? You can do that too, at least for yourself. So whatever you study, jot it down. Keep a journal. Go back and reread it. Use whiteout if you have to. <laughs> Rewrite some stuff. A couple, if you don't have a, a library at home that 
gives you all the resources you want. There are two great resources online, probably the ones I use most often in preparing my sermons. Uh, the first is uh, Bible Gateway, and they have, I don't know, 30 different translations of the Bible up there, including all the ones I just mentioned, except for the Passion Bible. And another great resource is called Blue Letter Bible. Org. And that's wonderful to do word studies. It'll give you the Greek or the Hebrew of, of any word uh, in, the New King, in the King James Version of the Bible, as, as well as access to um, maybe a, a dozen or so different commentaries. So those are great, two great resources. Great to have a good yeah, um, there's a Blue Letter Bible will give you Strong's Concordance electronically, <clears throat> and so it's a lot easier than trying to flip all the pages. Remember the old days, honey? I... I had all my books out on the dining room table, and they just spread all across from me, and I do sermon preparation. I go from book to book to book. Now it's just click, 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 cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. It's a, it's a, a whole lot easier. So there's, the, the Word of God is priceless. It's valuable. It's, it's essential. It's necessary. We can't forget it. We can't do without it. We can't see it as simply being some outdated document that no longer fits into our Word. Our world, the Word of God is alive. It's active. It's available to us. It's God's gift to us. It's, a, it's an incredibly helpful resource and tool um, at our disposal. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes. Pull back the veil so that we can understand your Word like we never had before. Lord, put other books in our hands, like, like Wayne Jacobson's He Loves Me did for me, that will just broaden our horizons, horizons, Lord. That will be like a spotlight to give understanding into your heart as communicated in your word. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Now.